Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hey there, podcats. I'm uh, taking a bit of a risk here. I'm recording this in my kitchen and I can see my five-year-old and my nearly two-year-old playing together. So... Jones! Jones, well done, Jess. That looks great. It's Jones. Perfect. Jones. <coughs> yeah, they're over there playing. No. We might get a few of those interruptions. I might give up the ghost, but let's have a go. So it's funny with this podcast, a few times now I've had it where I've interviewed someone and I've thought I've had a kind of a general idea of how our conversation's going to go. And then when we actually get to talk, they really surprise me. Um, and this is one of those. So today's uh, podcast guest is someone called Carrie Reichardt. Now, Carrie lives down the road from me. Sorry, I rushed her name there, didn't I? Carrie Reichardt. So Carrie is someone, she's a local artist. Um, I live in Chiswick. Uh, in West London and sometimes when I'm out and about I see these little mosaic tiles uh, and they'll have little messages on them so they might have a photograph and a quote quite a lot of them are quite sort of either slightly anarchic or kind of uplifting uh, like I've got one in my kitchen that I bought from her actually it's a plate and it says life is short always choose happiness and there's a picture of a sort of 1950s pinup. so she'll do things like that or she'll do fight the patriarchy or she'll do um, never trust an artist. They move seamlessly throughout classes and you know, can can deceive you. Fun things. I might have misquoted that last one. <laughs> I'm being, I'm sort of wandering around the house trying to find where I put the tile that has that, the actual quote. You know what? I'm going to find it for you. Hang on a second. 
Here we go. Sorry, this is the real quote. Beware of artists. They mix with all classes of society and are therefore the most dangerous. How brilliant is that? Anyway, I knew Carrie's house before I knew Carrie. She's got a house that's completely covered in mosaic tiles. I don't mean it's got a section of it that's mosaic. I mean front and back. The entire, every bit of brickwork is covered in a mosaic tile. Not just mosaic tiles, though. There's doll heads and messages and pictures formed in the mosaic. It's a completely astonishing sight. And it's on our way to our local um, overground station. So it sort of stopped me in my tracks. And Richard and I would kind of go there and take pictures of bits and bobs that we liked. And from there, yeah, I would see her tiles where she'd put them up other places. They've got a couple under a railway bridge near us. So she's very much a local artist, very much tapped into this area and turns out she grew up around here. Anyway, so when we spoke, I knew that she'd be interesting because she often wears a T-shirt that says unfit mother and unfit mother's kind of become part of her. She sort of reclaimed it after her ex-husband used it sort of slightly against her when they were raising their children together. Uh, So she thought, no, I'm taking that. Unfit mother, I'll have it. Um... But wow, this conversation, honestly, I had my jaw like open with things she told me. So I can't wait to share it with you. It's fascinating. And I would say it's one of my favourites out of all the ones I've done. So I'm very excited to be putting it out now. And yeah, if you're ever local, um, if you ever find yourself in sunny old Chiswick, go and seek out her house. Go and have a look at it. It's, um, It's wonderful, actually. It's a sort of celebration of... Uh, I suppose a sort of borderline suburban part of London. Uh, But it's a celebration of that. Um, And as you'll hear, the reason behind it carries huge resonance for Carrie and her mental health and the story of her and her children. And hey, we've even got a happy ending in this podcast too. Anyway, I hear the pitter-patter of tiny feet. I will leave you to it. Um, Mickey, give me that pen. Oh, my goodness, he's running around the house with a felt pen with no lid on. You know, that can only mean trouble. All right, um, see you on the other side. And please leave, keep leaving me your comments. Your comments this year have really kept me going. This podcast has been a gorgeous thing for me. I've had all my shimmery, sparkly, silly discos. I've had swathes and swathes of domesticity. But the podcasts have been really precious and I'm already nearly, I'm halfway through actually doing series two. So that's got some treats as well. Anyway, I, I can hear another pitter-patter, another bloody small person coming my way. <laughs> I see. I should probably just hide, have a little soft padded room I just hide myself away in. All right, lots of love. See you on the other side. Here's Carrie. Thank you for coming to talk to me. Uh, I was really excited about the idea of talking to you um, for lots of reasons, but also it's such a nice reason that we know each other um, because we live, what, like eight minutes away from each other? I think, I think. it is eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, before I knew you, I knew your house. Um, I used to walk past your house on the way to the, the train station that's near there. And um, for people that haven't seen your house, it's covered in mosaics, front and back. Um, and it's extraordinary. It's completely beautiful. It stops you in your tracks. It looks intriguing. And I remember I used to walk past it, even when we first moved to the area, and I'd have like one of the little ones in a buggy, and I'd be looking at all the writing and all the images. Do you think when people look at the house, do you think they can tell a lot about you just from what they see on the outside? I, th- 
I think both. I think in one way, so much of it is autobiographical because mm. it has my mother's name on it, it has my kids' names on it, it talks about all the things that I was passionate about. But in another way, no, I don't think they can. I think a lot of people make assumptions about me based mm. on my house or, you know, if you were to read the comments on the Daily Hate Mail, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that smells of patchouli or oil or that I'm an old hippie. or I mean, I think people look at something and project a lot onto it. Mm. I mean, I used to always think when I made art that I was literally standing naked in front of people, that they would be able to know my whole internal thought process. Yeah. But as I've got older, I've realised that's not true. I just feel like what I'm doing is very revealing because it is so autobiographical. Yeah. But in reality, people just project something onto it. Yeah, I suppose it is a kind of two-way two -way street like that, isn't it? Um, it's funny when you said about standing naked, it reminded me of this quote that my mum told me about the other day, and I'm trying to remember who it was that said it originally. I think it was something like someone like Isabella Rossellini who said that acting is standing naked in front of people and turning round very, very slowly. <laughs> Which I thought, well, so. Well, I think a lot of creativity is, a lot of that is, when it's so like you know, driven by your own personal life and stuff. I do think, you know, you, when you put it out there, you feel very vulnerable. Mm. You know, you feel like people can can see into your soul. Not with all of my work, but, you know, especially when I was at art college, I felt tremendously like that. When I did my degree show and my parents were coming, I was horrified. I thought they were going to know all of the secrets of my life by looking at the art. And yet when my dad turned up to my degree show, he literally, I did body casting then. So all oh, wow. of my work was about body casting and was very, very much about, you know, I'd just discovered feminist art of 85 and it was all very much autobiographical about what it was like to be a female in, in a college. When my dad came, he literally banged, knocked on the resin cast and said, did you make that? Did you? That's not bad. That's not bad. You made that. And I realised, you know, I thought my dad was going to be able to see all of these things, all these topics that I was trying to talk about. But really, he just saw a body. He saw a mannequin. He didn't see any of it. So, yeah. I know, it's funny, I think you can write about... I've done, I've definitely done, I've written about people in songs, but actually people don't often recognise themselves from a, like a, a third-person perspective anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very... I mean, it's hard enough to do it with yourself, isn't it, to be objective. So I think, yeah, recognising... Your dad recognising what you were sort of talking about with you, he probably saw the same bits of you he always sees, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. it's all the stuff you're looking for. And I think with my house, it's just like... I hope that people just see it as a kind of a... A, 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 you know hope I hope they mm. just they just come across it and it's just this it's so visually incongruous to the rest of the street it's just this bright colourful home yes. I think you know most people see it as like wow that's you know that's it's just a cool thing to see definitely I mean is that the home so you've got three children is that the home that they grew up in well it's the house my father used to, well, he has property and he rented it out. He was like a Rigsby character because mm -hmm. when I was growing up, I'd always stand behind him like Rigsby, making impersonations. But basically, <laughs> he's a very strange person, very much on the spectrum. But he had all these properties and the house, that house was the first house that my parents ever bought 
when they had my brothers, but they moved there and moved to a house in, in Sutton Court Road, which I grew up in. Okay. But it was a multi local. It was a multi-occupied house with all bedsits and my sister moved there just before she was 18 and got a one-bedroom flat and then my brother had moved into a bedsit. When I was 16, I was like, I've got to leave, I can't live at home, it's torturous. And so they agreed to let me have a bedsit. So I live in what was now the toilet at the top of the house was where I moved when I was 16. Oh, wow. And then I lived in every room as a bedsit. And then I lived there till I was about, I think, 19 and then my dad gave me a flat in Acton and then I moved to study in Leeds and I moved to Acton again and um but then when I had a child my daughter my sister moved to another house and I kind of inherited the ground floor flat and slowly I took over the front and the whole house but really it's the home that I've known since I was 16. Wow okay so did you did you have your babies living there? Yes as soon as I was pregnant I moved in there so that's the only home they've ever known. Ah so they kind of they must find that that whole it's, it's, as it's morphed and changed and evolved, that must be also the sort of backdrop to their... Well, it's really strange because they're all very different. My oldest, she hated it. She was so embarrassed by it. You know, she didn't really want people to know that she lived there. But my son's really quite likes it. And now I think, now it's finished and now they're much more a kind of... They kind of have a sense of pride in it now. But I think when they were growing up, it was, you know, they were the freaky kids who lived in the freaky house that <laughs> I'd given mohawks all to when they were babies. You know, I'd kind of, you know, I'd set them out to be different from the beginning. And they went through that phase where they just wanted brown hair and to blend into the background and to become not known as living in the mad house in Chiswick. But now I think they don't mind it so much now. So they're now 22... 22... Newly 18. Newly 18 and 15. Okay. Um, And that's a a girl, boy and a girl, right? So your your youngest two are still living at home? Yep, and so is my 18-year-old. Okay. So they've only just... Well, my 18-year-old's just dropped out of Chiswick School, but my youngest still goes there, which is the school I went to. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah... It's not really how I thought. I always thought I would escape Chiswick. I always grew up hating it. <laughs> you know, I grew up around here too, and I did the same thing. And actually, when I was looking to move, when I had my second baby, when Rich and I were looking, and he suggested Chiswick, I was like, that's the most uncool place ever. And now I, I actually really love it, but I, I think 15-year-old me would be horrified that I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I desperately wanted to leave Chiswick. I saw it as the suburbs. I always wanted to go to... I always wanted to go to Notting Hill, obviously, or, yeah. you know, Labrick Grove or Camden. When I was growing up, Camden was the cool place to go to. Yeah, that's where I moved when I first left home, actually. Camden. Well, so I always wanted to leave, and then I did leave, and then I, I kind of went up north to study, and then I lived in Crewe for a short while, and then I lived in Acton. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, when I had a child, I came to Chiswick, and it was that classic thing where it's like, oh, it's quite green, actually. The schools yeah. are quite good, you know. My mum always used to say that I don't know why you bother rebelling because by the time you're 40, you'll be just like me. And I'd be like, no, no, never, never. I'm never going to be like you. And it's like, I think she was a decade out because now I'm 50. I do feel remarkably <laughs> like her. It's kind of scary. Well, maybe, do you think then maybe the what you've done with your home and making it so, as you say, stand out and with your little ones as well when they were growing up, do you think you needed to have that sort of rebellious nature about kicking against things a little bit about well, the I was convention. Kicking, well, I was kicking against my own family because my parents basically gave both my brothers and my sister a house for them 
to kind of do what they want with. And I was always told I couldn't have one or I wasn't considered really mentally well enough to have one. And they kind of, I do understand why they might have felt that because I had a, a lot of time in my life where I wasn't very well, mentally not very well. And, and I can understand that they would have worried because I married a complete stranger after knowing them for one day. And I could see why they might be nervous about that. But what happens with parents, I think with my parents is, even though I got better and weller, they never really stopped perceiving me in a certain way. And then for some reason, they gave my sister two houses. And so that she had that house. And for years, I couldn't really, it wasn't in my name. So in a way, I felt like I was squatting my own house. Uh. So putting all the mosaics up was kind of a defiance of, well, I don't own the house, I'll do what I like with it. I mean, now <laughs> I actually do, I do worry what I've done because it's like, I can't ever sell it. It's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of, it's, it's the house is so much in, interwove into my whole life and the way that I fit in with my family but yeah it's very interesting because I've been in therapy for five years for the last five years mm -hmm. so it's quite interesting to kind of reevaluate all these things and to, yeah. to really understand that a lot of my anarchic kind of rebellion is is a lot to do with that kind of against my own family kicking against something with within my own family yeah and and kind of unraveling that and seeing where, where who you really are so up until this point, when because there's a lot to sort of unpick there, but if you up until this point, the therapy wasn't part of something that was going. You mentioned mental health issues and challenges, so that that wasn't something that wasn't a way you were dealing with it up until now. No, no. I mean, I had a like I've had I would guess two proper nervous breakdowns, two times where I was nearly hospitalised, and you know, really in my life blew up and then a third time which was more considered because I think once you've had children the you know for me having children saved my life without a shadow of a doubt I was on a very destructive path that wasn't really capable of looking after myself but as soon as I had a child it was like I'm gonna be try and protect I'm gonna do the best I can and it it wasn't an easy path it's been a long slow path but you know like a lot of my girlfriends I think we had children at a time where we would have gone on to you know we were self-destructive mode mm -hmm. and so you know it's been a very long journey my kind of sorting myself out you know I think this is why it's interesting being post-menopausal it's interesting to be in my 50s it's it's interesting now to be able to look back with that amount of experience and to be able to look at it in different ways and analyze things and have a much better understanding of why I behaved in certain ways yeah and does the understanding sort of company being able to sort of forgive yourself these things you think and sort of what's what is that like to sort of look back I think it's because I think I was a I reacted to everything I think before therapy because people often I, I would never you know I tried all kinds of counseling and therapy and always hated it I never yeah. saw the point of it it's like I know what's wrong just don't know how to change that thought process and so I thought it all very pointless mm. until I really engaged in long term for you know I, I was very lucky I accessed low cost two year um, psychotherapy with where you go in with someone who's training to be a therapist. Okay. So you just literally pay for the hire of the room. Uh-huh. And so for two years I was with this woman who then said, I'm not going to leave you at this point, I'm going to continue. So for five years nearly she's given me therapy low cost. Okay. Because it's kind of a journey that we're both on. And I think the, only, the, the main thing that therapy has enabled me to do is to it sounds cliche, but to sit with my emotions. It's enabled me to have feelings and understand that they don't have to overwhelm me. I can sit there and feel something. Yeah. And if it's 
if it's hysterical, the chances are it's historical. That, you know, that drama, you know, the drama of, you know, certain things in my past, you know, I've learned to be able to sit with an emotion. I've learned to be able to distance enough to be able to think about it. And once you have that ability, it, it creates a much better, healthier space for you to explore things, you know, rather than be constantly overwhelmed by your emotions. Yeah. And so I think that's been the greatest learning curve for me because the more I've enabled myself to do that, the more I can kind of intercept something where normally I would be like crying or upset I've been able to distance myself and go hang on a minute why am I so upset yeah what's going on here yeah and so I think all of that therapy my therapist always likes to say I've been working on myself a lot you know which I do agree with but I think that's gone alongside with my age yeah I was going to say do you think this would is something you have to kind of is it serendipitous has to be the right thing at the right time a little bit I think People don't understand how much the menopause shifts you. Mm. You know, they don't... It's not something we talk about a lot. No, that's got to change, I think. I think, but the thing is, is that something so physical happens, on the physical way, it changes you, and people don't prepare you for it. Mm. And so, some people always say, well, what's the menopause like? And I was like, well, you know when you have a period... And you kind of, before, you get cry. You cry because you see a Hovis advert or you're <laughs> shouting or things. You become irate. And then a few days later, you'll have your period and you'll go, oh, God, that's why I was emotional. It's like being emotional for two years or five years or not knowing. It's that kind of emotional imbalance. It's hard to know that it's to do with your hormones and to do with something going on in your body. Yeah. And it's hard to distinguish between what's emotionally being driven by your body yeah. and what's externally happening and yeah. what's just factors in your life. Yeah. Because I went, you know, I went in 2012, my mum died, which was, you know, sh shattering. And then I split up with my partner and the father of uh, my two youngest kids. And then I think that literally pushed me into the menopause. I think that it's very linked to our emotional being anyway oh that's interesting i hadn't thought of well that no before. i know two women i know two mothers who hadn't had periods for like maybe a two three years who then had periods on being told that their children had died and i wow. i didn't have a period for a year and a half and thought i was through it and then my daughter phoned me up to say she was going to get on a plane with mumps and i was so horrified thinking that she might you know, what this was going to mean, that I had a period. It was the only one I had within a three-year period. And I think people don't understand that. You know, when my mother died, it felt like my umbilical cord had been cut and severed. And I do believe that there is something that we don't understand mm. between mothers and children. And, and, you know, it's so deep. Yeah. And I think society is so... Culturally, we are so cruel to women, especially older women. Yeah. You know, we literally are telling you if you're postmenopausal, you're not fanciable, you're not attractive, nobody's going to want you, you're going to become invisible, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so that's so, even if you don't believe it, even if you try to fight against that, that's so around you all the time that you can't anaesthetize yourself from that. I think that process starts from the time you have your first baby or, you know, you've been pregnant or whatever because... I, I personally have a massive problem with the term MILF. I absolutely hate it. I think it's really sort of... I think it's like a sort of pitying sort of a thing of like, oh, don't worry, I, I still fancy you even though, even though you've had a baby. Like, oh, yeah. I shove mean, off. Well, this is the thing I think. <laughs> I think that you women should just have guilty as charge written on them because you can never, you can never, you know, 
be enough or do enough or, you know, whatever you do, you're going to always be, you know, so filled with guilt. I mean, I've spent yeah. my whole life as a mother being guilty. Yeah, I'm always in awe of any woman that doesn't have... I have met mothers that don't have guilt, but I... And I, I always think, like, I should be like that. That's really inspiring, but I don't... That's not how I live my life. Well, no, because I think society's moving forward and women can now do loads of things that they couldn't do, but society's judgment is is still set back a generation yeah you know and and there's just that internal guilt that you know i know that as a single parent and as 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 one that's had to financially support my kids for the last six years at least that i have to go and work and that you know Mm. our household is dependent on me doing things and it means traveling and i love my work you know, I think if I hated my work, I wouldn't feel quite so guilty because I do love my work. But, you know, there's always that part of me that thinks, you know, I should be at home. I'm not looking after the kids. Or, But if I was a man, nobody would really say anything. No, it's definitely not, not an even playing field, I don't think, at all. And, you know, Richard and I talk about it in, just in terms of the questions we get asked when, when we are working. And I always am asked lots of questions about who has the kids when I'm doing stuff. And I bet, I don't know for you in music, but I know for me that, that whenever they write anything about me especially in the Daily Mail, hate mail, they'll always say, uh, artist, mother of three. Yeah. They'll yeah. always have my age and they'll always say how many kids I have. And, I, you know, you find me a cutting where it tells you how many kids a male artist has. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. In fact, even name a male artist who's a single parent, who's famous. Yeah. I know. No, you're right, I can't think of anyone, actually. Um, or if they are a single parent, then they don't, they're not, the emphasis is not on um, how how they're managing to do it or if they have a night out, like where why are they having a night out or why are they going out dating? They should be at home with their kids or they should be being, you know, the, the perfect father. It, it's actually... And also because... If they the, do do things with their kids, they're seen as like, oh, well done, you did things with your kids. Well, I've literally just done this piece of public art for a library in Bristol that celebrates SPAN, which is the Single Parents Action Network, which mm-hmm. was a really radical, amazing group of women who got together, mainly working class... You know, a lot of them were black. They got together and they formed a group and they set up this organisation to represent single parents. And over a 10-year period, they turned it into a national gallery, a national uh, charity and really affected so policy. Mm. But, you know, when I worked in their archive, it was fantastic because they'd, they'd collected every newspaper clipping about single mothers. And when you look at it and you look at the hatred and you look at the the way that we think about single mothers. If yeah. you say single mother, you think of someone on the dole, you think of someone who's not working, you think of a scrounger, you think of a young girl who's got pregnant to just get her council flat. I mean, that's what's been pumped out all the time. Statistically, it's rubbish. You know, yeah. really, the average age of a single parent is 39. Yeah. And, and over 60% of them are in work. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's getting a lot worse. Because in 2008, you weren't expected to work until your first child was 16. But now you have to work when your first child is eight. So think about what that does to, the, to, to a family unit. When, yeah. when over 60% of single parents are in poverty mm. and 90% of them are women. You know, if you're a man and you're a single parent, you're kind of like, oh, wow. That's so lovely, you know, oh, that's really lovely. You know, we, we kind of pity it or we think of it as a hero or we, yeah. you know. But if it's a woman, it's like you're, you're, you know, we attack the female and they're the ones who take on the role of caring for the kids. 
Yeah, I mean, this and this isn't a, a comment on you know how well single dads and single mums are doing. It's it's literally about, as you say, the perception and what what is what is thrown back at at these women, single mums. Um, so how I'm trying to get the timeline here? So when you were you had your first baby, did you did you plan on being a mum? Was there something that was in your... Okay, well, when I was 29, I mean, when I was 28, I had a complete nervous breakdown. I was working as a care worker at the time, and if I was honest, I was self-medicating with rather too many drugs and drink, but I had a complete breakdown. I think I literally... sounds awful, but I really, really thought I'd never have kids, I'd never get married. I was like... I, the partner I was with just walked out on me. And I just couldn't cope. And I was really, really guilt-ridden because I'd had abortions in my when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't understand also that that can, for me, it just created this ongoing guilt of this kind of, you know, this feeling, oh, my God, I'm going to be punished. I'll never have children. I'd got to nearly 30 and I had that biological clock and it was all like... I think because I'm a bit on the spectrum, I have this very black-and-white way of thinking. And so, literally, I had this complete breakdown... And they were going to put me in a place called The Castle, which is like an expensive psychotherapy unit. I was diagnosed with an extreme personality disorder, which now you would probably diagnose as bipolar, ADD, spectrum. There'd be a different terminology, but basically mm. I couldn't function. I was very unhappy. And uh, I didn't really want to go. I did want to go, and then I thought, do I really want to go to this place for six months? Do I want to? I didn't think it was going to help me. I'd seen a documentary about it. I was a bit freaked out, and I was making art at the time. Mm. And I had some work in a show called Disturbance Value, and there was another artist there, and we met, and we agreed to get married and have children, and we did. And two weeks later, I was married at Hackney Registrar. So, sorry, there's someone, so you met them, and you just, after a day, you were like, I think we're going to... Make, the, make a future for ourselves. Yeah, because I was I didn't want to go to, to the hospital. I just, I thought, if I have a child, I'll sort myself out. And, you know, we were both really quite unwell. Mm. And we did, we agreed. Mm. And two weeks later, I got married at Hackney Registrar. And my friends brought cardboard cutouts and we had Take That and Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and we had dogs as bridesmaids. And I kind of saw it as a performance piece. It wasn't really mm. real. It was like a performance piece. You know, I, I mean, he, he had a great, he had a really funny day glow shirt on and I had Mickey Mouse ears and it was all kind of, yeah, it was what it was. But in reality, as nuts as that sounds, I had my daughter Poppy. Yeah. And for both of us, we didn't stay together. We didn't even live together, really. Mm. But we had a child together and for both of us, it was our redemption. Yeah. You know, he's a, he, you know, for, for all his faults, he's, he's been a good, caring father and he loves his daughter to pieces. And having mm. my daughter was the thing that first got me onto a much better path. I started doing community mosaics. I started, I just started doing uh, mosaics at her school and then mm. people saw it and that started in the entire career of doing community work and wow. public art. So this, your relationship with art, art's been there for what, from the time you were really young? Yeah. I mean, what I've realised is that my mother, who was taught how to knit in the subway when she was four during the air raids, really? on four needles, making socks for soldiers. Wow. 
I've realised now that she spent her whole life knitting, you know, knitting. Mm. You know, that was how her safe space yeah. was knitting. And she was a ferocious knitter. You know, there's <laughs> I a like f- your tear finger ferocious knitter. No, no, she was. I mean, there's a whole story like, you know those pens that you put a child in? That yeah. you're supposed to, my mother used to sit in there and knit with the four kids running riot outside. <laughs> she told me she practised benign neglect. I was like, what's that? And she said, well, within a certain perimeter, I think children should be allowed to run free and make their own mistakes. But, yeah, I mean, she had four children under the age of five and was 21 or or 24 or something. So, yeah, so I realised that she was a knitter and that really she passed that on to me. I Mm. was always making things. Yeah. Very Blue Peter-ish. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, I was. Yeah. And so... I always made things, but I was always very insecure about my ability as an artist because I'm not a drawer, I'm not a painter, I'm a person who makes stuff. Mm. And it was always my place that I loved. When I was at school, I loved the cross-stitch, I loved the clay. So it was always a place I went to, though I never necessarily think this is what I'm good at, I'm not Mm. the gifted artist. But and, and my life has been all happy accidents. I ended up doing a degree in sculpture because I failed to get into the degree on film that I wanted. Mm. But I suppose really now I think, yeah, I am an artist. I need to create because creating is where I meditate. Creating is where I process things. Creating is where I'm safe and I can always go to. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant Glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact you're an artist. I mean, it's... 
it's clearly so so entwined and how how you need to be seen how you need to articulate how you prioritize and process all the things that matter to you I think it's clearly from the time you were young been a place to put all that and make sense of things I mean I wonder why do you think there's a sort of elitism then in the art world that made you feel like you were so oh, yeah definitely I've always felt stupid I've always felt thick I think now I can say it's because I'm probably undiagnosed dyslexic you know my everyone I know says you're dyslexic <laughs> you know and I think if you are dyslexic and you don't know it and you grow up in a normal education system yeah you just fail. You're failing in the way that they're testing you. Completely. You know, I've, I've got friends the same, you know, like peers of, of you and I that would have had exactly the same experience. Yeah, so that. I know now I, in my 50s I can look back and go, oh, God, yeah, do you know what I mean? I'd have every diagnosis going probably. But, yeah, mm. I'm definitely someone who is neurodiverse. Is that the word? I can't remember what the word is. Probably. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I'm definitely someone that doesn't fit into this, to the yeah. box and that you go through a system that's always alienating you. Mm -hmm. And so I always struggled with history of art. I always struggled with all of that stuff. I've always felt a bit like a Philistine. And I think now I know myself well enough to know that I rejected it all because I was scared of being seen to not know. So it's that kind of like, I don't care. Mm. Stick two fingers up of it. You know, you kind of reject something because you already feel an outsider to it. But on the other side of that, I had a mother that kept taking me around stately homes the whole time I was growing up. You know, I'd follow her around, bored out of my brains, waiting to spend <laughs> my two pounds in a gift shop with my leather bound bookmarks. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. you know, I had that kind of background, but there's another side that really resisted it, who's always felt like the outsider. Yeah. You know, I feel like I, I'm in a mosaic world, but I'm on the outside of that because it, I don't really, I'm not really like the way they do master mosaics. I feel in the street art world, I'm in the outsider of that because I do ceramics. It's not, yeah. you know, I feel like in the fine art world, I was in the outside of that because I did very political feminist work. Yeah. I've always felt on the periphery of many different circles. Yeah. But now I kind of love that fact. I'll just take that as, you know, it's great because I've been able to spend my life creatively just following a path and doing what I like and haven't had to be pigeonholed into anything. Yeah. I was thinking when you were talking about the fact that it's so significant, I think, to me anyway, from where I'm sitting, like the fact that you've covered this, this childhood home and these mosaics that are, in one way, it's quite rebellious and subversive because you've taken the place that was you know, your parents, your dad's place, and you've made it like, nope, this is Carrie's place. And then it's also subversive about when you think about going around these stately homes and feeling like the outsider. So you're looking at these places that are very beautiful and there's expected code of conduct, the way you behave when you're in those environments and what's allowed and not seemingly not allowed. So you've taken a house that presumably your place down the road is similar sort of era to mm. my house so it's yeah. sort of around uh, Victorian arts Ooh. and crafts when everything's quite proper you know Chiswick was the home to the first they have a garden suburb yes. you know Bedford Park there's historical little you know it's it's got that background to it and there's like you know the little blue plaques on things and you know there's a lot of people around here that really love the fact that this is this is Chiswick this is Bedford Park and you know I don't feel like I fit into that certainly so can only imagine if you, you know, you're already feeling like that. So again, you've done that to your home. You've gone like, ah, ah, this is an old house. Yes, but look at it now. But then also what it also does by putting your family's names in there, by it's also really celebratory and optimistic. So it's about saying, because it's it, it actually, maybe I might be overthinking it, but almost as well when you're saying about 
the therapy and saying if it's hysterical, it's historical. Well, in a way, the mosaics is like quite a predominant. It's, it's, it is quite hysterical, isn't it? It's really loud and yeah. extrovert, and but it's also about history. And also, I think because it's mosaic, there's something that tiling does that mutes that kind of. It mm. stops being shouty and like angry because there's a certain bit where you have to appreciate the skill or the yes. or the mosaics or the tiling. You know, it's kind of you know all of those times I was taken to look at the Vic, um, Victorian Albert Museum. Obviously, had some. You know, it's, yeah. it's stuck oh, it's, in my I mean, mind how... and enabled me to have quite a high ability to understand ceramics or to, yeah. to appreciate uh, craft. Well, it goes back to, I mean, I'm thinking of like Roman mosaics. I mean, that's part of how they're, they're placed, all the bathhouses and everything, how it always looked. It's incredibly beautiful. And I suppose within the fact that you've made it your own and you can write whatever you want and um, highlight whatever you want, there's also a, a form it has to follow and a place where all the tiles have mm. got to go in order to... Does it matter to you where the tiles come from, where the ceramics are from, in terms of like where you're finding things? Well, no. I mean, a lot of it's just about finding the colour that you want, to be honest. So where, where do you find your stuff? I actually make a lot of the colour now because I get old, I get tiles and I lay a colour of anglaise on it. You can't get those greens or reds. or They're very, very expensive and they're very difficult to make that can go outside because it's a high firing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the colour now I produce myself. And, wow. But... At that time, I have to say that the most of the lowest sections of my house were with tiles that I got that they were going to throw into a skip from Reed Harris. I literally went there in my car going backwards and forwards. Yeah, you said I'd have those. Yes, and filled up my garage with all these tiles, which now you couldn't get for love or money. Now you have to have tiles imported from Portugal if you want to work wow. on public art outside. It's that difficult. Because people don't understand our manufacturing closes down and we lose the ability to even make things because we don't have them. Yeah, and it, it, the... The tiles, are they all the same? Are they sometimes things that you have, are bigger pieces that you have to break up? No, they all are. I mean, they're all literally the tiles that you'd make your bathroom and kitchen with. And then smashed up. Smashed up. A lot of it's printed. Within my own house, there's loads of ceramic components that I've made, all the ceramic components as well. Do you think that... Because uh, it sounds to me like behind your, your desire to create, there's also a lot of quite highly skilled stuff you're actually well, doing. Well, I think... I think this is why I've been able to like grow into the idea that I am an artist is purely because I've got so skilled. I mean, I yeah. spent eight years going to Richmond Adult College three days a week, self-teaching myself how to uh, apply image onto clay and how to do slip cast ceramics. You know, I spent three years at college. I've been very privileged in the sense that being able to have a house to live in has enabled me to go and keep learning all the time mm -hmm. and so I've done 15 years of ceramics I've done 15 years of mosaicing I've got a first class degree in sculpture I can pull all those skills together and endlessly add to them yeah and so I kind of invented my own form of mosaicing which is I call ceramic collage mm -hmm. ceramic tapestry which enables me to print on all the tiles and then use tiles as a form of collage yeah, and interweave it with all these stories and narratives. And I suppose now I have, it's great because I can do that with public work. I can take all that skill and then try and put it in the public domain in a way that voices as many people as I can and allow them to tell their stories. Yeah, does it allow you to find find those kindred spirits? Do you feel like you're almost sometimes reaching out to like the you when you felt like you didn't really? Well, I'm always looking out for those people who felt that they that they're voiceless. Yeah. Maybe that's how you felt when you were 
I've always, yeah, I always struggled with even speaking. I mean, I've always been plagued with um, tonsillitis, problems with my throat. Mm. When we first started, when I first started doing uh, community work with my two friends, we'd go to these events where they'd show it and the mayor would come and they'd say, would you like to say something? And uh, all of us would go, no, <laughs> no, I can't say anything. I can't. We'd be terrified. We could yeah. never speak publicly. But really, I only became able to speak publicly because I got involved with, like, campaigning against the death row and campaigning for my friends who were political prisoners. And when I engaged in all of that kind of activism, mm. I became so passionate about talking for them yeah. that I'd got on stage and I overcame my own fear and, and just started doing it. And that's what really started me being able to go around and give talks and lectures and, and, and wow. just... I found my voice for them, which is why my favourite quote is, the quickest way to happiness is to find a cause greater than yourself. Yes. And yeah. so I think that's that a lot of people will tell you that in activism or who've done things that they become so passionate and it helps them. It yeah. really does. It helps you to just be able to stand up and say something. So you mentioned people on death row. How did that become part of your life? Oh, because I was a community artist working in Croydon, I think, and I picked up, I bought the big issue and at the back it said human rights. Uh, it was an organisation said... Um, could you befriend someone on death row as a human act, someone who has no family and friends? And this is, goes back to, like, 2000, pre the computer time, mm -hmm. a kind of an innocent time, really, where I just thought, oh, yeah, I could do that. And funnily enough, I mean, I really was into, like, Silence of the Lambs. I had that misconception that I was going to be writing to a mass murderer. Wouldn't that be interesting? Someone on death row. I had all that preconceived ideas that most people have. But I thought, yeah, that'd be interesting. So I applied and they just gave me a name and said, write to this man, Lewis. Yeah. And um, I sent him a letter. And then I got one back about three weeks later. And, it, and I was a, I'd just become a single parent to Poppy then. She was about three. And I remember the letter arriving and being on my mantelpiece and thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? Oh, no, I've written... <laughs> Must have felt weird, like, in your yeah, house I've next written to... to someone on death row. What am I doing? This is, like, weird. <laughs> and I didn't open the letter for about a day. And then I opened the letter and it said, oh, hi, I'm Lewis. I, I see you do mosaics. I actually did mosaics before I was in prison. I'm sending you a picture of someone that I think you would like. And, and, you know, instantly humanity hits you in the face. Yeah. It's like a person that's just talking to you. Yeah. It was like, wow. And, and, and from that letter, it was a five-year very intense friendship where we wrote to each other literally every week, you know, for the whole five years. And I got a very rude awakening into what capital punishment means, which means those with no capital get punished. You know, the yeah. statistics are frightening. I won't yeah. go into it, but it was just like, yeah... And I'm very OCD about things when I'm in something, I'm in there. So for about 10 years, I was very, very much active in trying to raise consciousness about death row because I, I spent the two days with Lewis before he was executed. And then actually I was at... What, the, you went there? Yeah, I was there. I was visiting... I visited, Whereabouts was this? Where this was is he? Texas. In Texas. So I was there for the two days before he was executed and visited him oh and that's why word. i promised that i would make a mosaic on my house which is why it's the lewis ramirez wall is the back wall yeah. it's all dedicated to him and that's why i said to him if you send me something that's plastic or metal i can incorporate it into the wall so after he died i got a letter that says from hind signed way and it and it has that pass which is his prison pass which he should never have even been executed without so i don't know how he got that out to me and then they stopped having them <gasps> But yeah, that's that's embedded in the wall, 
And then what happened is the guy that was in the cell next to him, whose wife I knew because they'd been friends with Lewis, I started writing to him for a year and she asked me to be a witness at his execution. So then I had to go back to Texas oh two, year, two years later and witness my... He wasn't close to me like Lewis, but he had become a friend. But, yeah, I witnessed his execution. So were you actually there with when Lewis was executed? No, no. With Lewis, I was with him for the two days yeah. and then they executed him the next day. OK. And with... with um, Ash, John Joe Amador, I was there. I was literally had to go down the oh Green Mile and watch it. So, yeah, I mean, it was all very traumatic. But the thing is, is that... Does it get any more... I mean, nothing can be more intense than that, surely. That's profound. No, and, and the, the really kind of amazing thing with this story is that Texas is, is an, a non-contact prison, which means, like, when you get locked up, you never have contact with your family again. You know, the only people who touch you are prison guards... So, like, Ash was executed after 12 years, never touched his family from the moment he went in, not even a mother's last final hold. The only person who touches you is the priest holds your leg. But Texas is the only state in America that legally you can transport a dead body if you have your own body bag. And so my friend, good friend Nick Reynolds, who's in a band called Alabama Free, mm. his father was Bruce Reynolds, the great train robber, but he's a leading expert in death masks. That's what he does. So he flew out and we took, we've, as soon as Ash died, within minutes, we got his death certificate that says homicide. We took him from the morgue that's attached to the prison, put him in a hire car, drove him, drove him for half an hour into some woods to some cabins we'd hired out, took a door off of its hinge, put it on two camp beds, put him in there and made a death mask of him within an hour of him dying, which is very unheard of. In fact, the death mask looks like he has stubble, but really it was goosebumps because he was oh. warm when we got him. So we did this thing that was very kind of ritualistic. Yeah. And so we made this death mask and then we brought it back to England and uh, it actually went on the front of the Tiki Love truck. So that truck that's in front of my house, it was commissioned by Walk the Plank for the first ever art car parade. So seven days after I'd witnessed my friend be executed, I drove through Manchester with 45,000 people in attendance in that truck with Ash's death mask on the top. And so it was like a deity, you know, we'd kind of... And so I think doing all that was what helped me, was like having this mission, doing this insane art project in this hope that we could raise consciousness. But the most amazing thing is, is that, you know, in 2014, which is what... If it was, I can't do the maths, but 12, eight years later or whatever, it was in the Victorian Albert Museum as the star exhibit in their wow. Disobedient Objects show. And it went to Australia. That whole truck was sent over to Australia. Wow. So, you know, what started off as a weird kind of idea of, <coughs> of mine turned into this really amazing project where I think we really did use him, use his death as a way to try and humanise yeah. the situation. There's, uh, that was absolutely incredible. When when you went and did the death mask, was it just literally the the two of you? No, I had two friends. Ash. We had a friend who was filming and my friend Linda, who was my pottery tutor. I was supposed to have another friend come with me and she said, well, if that friend doesn't come, I'll be your number one backup. <laughs> and then the person couldn't go because their mother had a stroke. And I said, do you remember you said you'd be my backup? So my poor friend Linda, who's my pottery tutor, had to come with us. And he had this, it was an amazing kind of weird trip. Yeah. But if, if ever there was a way that showed you how art and creativity can kind of, 
you know, go to the darkest place and bring out a bit of light and try and do something with it. And, yeah. you know, that's how I protected myself from all that horror yeah. of what I witnessed. And did it... Was the, the crime they were in for at all part of what you were thinking or was it just no, literally because the they fact of this absolutely, death row? they, both Lewis and Ash went to their graves saying that they were innocent. Mm. Lewis was undeniably innocent because he was 70 miles away valuing a plot of land when it happened. But what you have to understand is a lot of people in death row, especially Texas, are there on the hearsay evidence. You know, there's no nothing that links them to the crime. Ash had a terrible life. He'd been in prison most of his life. He'd been... His earliest uh, memories were of, like, being in a cage. Grew up, like, literally being in a cage and his stepfather holding a gun to his head. He'd had an oh. appalling life. Um... But his solicitor was so convinced that he was innocent that she mortgaged a house and tried to get reports done. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that said, he, you know, the eyewitness said it was a very tall Arab and he's a very short Mexican. I mean, mm. you know, and I, I just, I don't know. I don't know enough about his case, but I know that he was protesting his innocence mm. in his final breath. I mean, the, 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 the thing is as well, like, no matter what, you know, I just... No, I mean, I, I ended up writing to five people on death row and, and some of them had done the crime. But as soon as you got beyond the crime and heard their stories, it's just pitiful. You yeah, know? and plus, I just, I just don't agree with... I just don't believe in the state should be able to punishment. take yeah. a life because I don't trust the state enough to do anything. No, and also, even if the people who are staunchly for it, the moment one innocent person is, is murdered that way... The whole thing doesn't. It, it, their argument falls apart. I think. Mm. So, you know, if you're if you're someone that does believe in it, which you know, I, I actually have never met anyone that does. But do you remember they used to put a series on TV, um, Life and Death Row, the BBC? Yes, series. yes. I mean, I obsessively have watched most. I thought they things. were wonderful. Actually, really stayed with me. Really haunting. And you, yeah, you just saw time and time again these people where the odds are just stacked against them from from the get go. Really. Um, I remember one really haunting one where the, this guy, he was in his, only in his 20s and he'd been, I can't remember what happened initially, but he was on the run from the police and they were throwing down the spikes across the road and he'd swerved to avoid them once. And when he went round the second load of the spikes, a policeman was standing there, so he'd hit this policeman. And he wasn't even um, trying to um, protest and fight his case. He's just like, this is just what's going to happen to me. I've, I've killed a policeman. And now I ha this is just what's happened. And when, when he was talking, he was so calm. And I couldn't decide if he was either the most sort of this really wise, incredibly centred person or if it was, you know, the most sort of ridiculous, like, come on, no, fight your case. I couldn't well, I work think it out. It's one or the other. My experience of writing to quite a lot of prisoners is that that f intense isolation and that kind of situation yeah. they're in... They tend to go different ways. A lot yes. of them become over-religious. You know, they turn to religion. Some of them go completely insane. And, and, and some of them just have to become kind of spiritually awakened people. They have to learn to accept something, yeah. you know. And I also have written to uh, the Angola Three, who are like the longest-serving men in solitary confinement. I write to a guy called Zulu who's in his 40th or 41st year in solitary confinement there, Black Panthers and revolutionaries. And they are all like the most amazing people that you could ever write to because they've literally, you know, have they get up and do yoga and then they do 
exercise and then they read books and they've really kind of trained their brains to exist in this place. And I used to ask Robert King, I was like, how could you do 33 years in solitary confinement? And he literally said, time changes, you know, time alters. You know, I think these things really happen. I wrote to one guy that could astro project. In fact, two of the people I wrote to talked endlessly about how they could come out their cell, they could fly, they could go around their town and then come back into their bodies. And so if you think about it, if you're so deprived, if you sit in a cell, if you lock people up for that long. Yeah. Certainly puts lockdown into perspective. Yeah, I know. I mean, it really did. You know what? When we went into lockdown, one of the things I started reading was um, Albert Woodfox's uh, autobiography called Solitary, which is about how he survived 44 years and 10 months in solitary confinement. And I wow. literally, I know that. So when I went into lockdown, lockdown I'm thinking look they could do 44 years I can do six months do you know what I mean I literally I use that as a kind of it's all going to be okay so running alongside this very intense and meaningful relationship you're forming with Lewis you also have your little girl was turning from three to eight so what 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 would she be aware of, of of all that do you think I don't think she was very aware of um well, she was, she must have been, because the thing is, is that when Lewis died, his girlfriend and her twin sister came, or no, his girlfriend came to stay in England with me just afterwards. I didn't know her, I'd met her once at the ex- just prior to the execution, but she asked to stay with me and I said, sure, um, if, you know, if you meant something to Lewis, you mean something to me. And she actually arrived on Christmas Day at like 10.30 and I was thinking, oh, my God, I wasn't expecting that. So, I, and, and she had an instant connection with my daughter, Poppy. Uh-huh. So was it just the, th- the three of you there? No, no, no. At that time, I was with my... I had met the partner that was with my two other children. Okay. And also at Christmas, I have a kind of open policy of anyone who doesn't anyone to go well, exactly to would end here. up at mine. Same here. So it was, you know several people there and uh, so she formed a quite a strong relationship mm. and then Lisa and her twin sister Linda came over and actually they asked if Poppy could go to America to stay with them and so for some part in the holidays and I agreed because I thought wow how fabulous to go and spend a couple of weeks in America so she did but because of that my daughter when she was 11 she went to visit Herman and Albert she was the long she she went to visit them in Angola prison. So, wow. So she visited Black Panthers when she was 11 and 13 on her own. And she also went to death row with, with the twins to visit people. So I think she was she's very acutely aware of all these things. In fact, when she was four, she went to an orphanage with me to work in a terrible orphanage in Romania. So she has been open and seen things that my other two haven't mm. because I was single with her till my son was six years... You know, she was six when I had my second child. Okay. And so she was very much me and her. And, yeah, yeah. she was exposed to lots of things, which I often wonder whether I should or shouldn't, you know, when you think, oh, do, you know... But to her credit, she's she's an amazing woman now who's, like, you know, got a first in politics and philosophy and now is on a Teach First programme and, you know, really... It sounds like it's pretty pretty informative for her like formative yeah. rather like the fact she ended up being in, interested in politics and philosophy these are all things that are really chime in with all those experiences and also i think you know if children are, are safe when they where they sleep and with the person that's looking after them i think they can cope with all manner the, the world is 
he's got lots of stuff going on and if I think if, if they always feel like they're it's about safety really isn't it first yeah, of all I mean I definitely followed a bit of the benign neglect parenting <laughs> skills in fact my mum I said to her oh I feel like I think I follow the same type of parenting as you and she said no your parameters are way too wide <laughs> but you know <laughs> you know I think this is the trouble I mean I used to be very guilt ridden about my parenting and ways that I've been but now I've really learned to just to do the best I can in the here and now because that's all I can do. Yeah. You know, and I've always said to my kids, look, you're just what you're just evolving. You're one generation. You're trying to evolve. Look at granddad. See where I come from. <laughs> you know, I've done the best that I can and I'm always trying to do the best I can. And I've always tried to be honest, at least to be honest about my failings and say, look, I know, hands up, I wasn't great at that because I feel in my family there is not that honesty. It's come from a generation where people didn't talk about their neuroses or their fears yeah. it's that war generation where you put your head down and you get on with it yeah well funnily enough I think a lot of the things you've spoken about about how you've raised your children and the topics that come up and how you've done it are actually more what's encouraged in parenting now where we're encouraged to not to just model success but model failure to talk about mental health to talk about all these things and to not helicopter them too much and to let them have freedom. Well, yeah, because I, I think everyone's reacting to the, you know, what you do is you overcompensate. You're always, I mean, I know I've overcompensated because, you know, I grew up in fear. Mm. I grew up in a world where I was scared. I was so scared, you know, that I'd get into trouble. I mean, my yeah. dad banned me from running when I was young because I fell and got sand in my eyes and told me I couldn't run. So about six months later when I ran and fell on a glass bottle, I didn't want to have to tell him. And when I did go home with blood pouring down my knees, he literally said, you've been running, haven't you? You've been running! I was like, oh, you know. I, I lived in a world that was very kind of unpredictable. Yeah. And you could get into trouble. And my dad was very scary. And so I really didn't want my kids to live in that world of fear. But what happened is I kind of overcompensated and went to this world where they don't fear anything and realised that it's quite difficult to, to bring kids up if they're actually not scared of you in any shape or form or there's mm. no consequence or, you know. So I think generationally we tend to try to overcompensate for yeah. things. No, and I, I, I'm definitely the same as you like that because um, I don't think... I'm not very good with consequences either in that ugh, I want to raise kind people and I hope I put the, you know, there's like a moral compass in the house that's really strong and a good core of that. But but the trouble with I find I sort of sympathise too much and like you, I have sometimes quite strict parents and so I've kind of gone the other way and and now I'm, I'm always sort of rooting for them and I kind of... But then when there's five people and they're all like these spirited, fearless <laughs> young people who have, you know, want to tell you everything about what they're doing, it's sometimes like, ah, I like to we just think, tone down the independence for this week, please? <laughs> I'd like to think, because now I'm older and so my kids are slightly older, that they go through that teenage years, it's really troublesome. Mm. And my therapist taught me that all I had to do was hold that space and mm. just be let them have that anger, let them take it out of me because I'm the person who can hold that. Yeah. And that was very hard for me because all my dad ever did was shout at me and so that became my natural default. But I've learned to do that, I've learned to hold that space and learned that they do grow out of it and that actually, you know, my daughter is, you know, is really amazing now, though, she, you know, she gave me a lot of trouble when, when she was younger and my son... Not so much so, but he was very angry. He used to shout at me a lot. And now that's all just, you know, it's gone. Mm. You know, it has. It, you know, it definitely gets better. Well, also, they shout, sometimes they take it out on you because you are a safe person who's not going to well, stop it's loving that, them. You're not going to go away. It's very hard being the single parent. 
Yeah. You know, it does come back to that thing that you're the mother and the father. You're going to shout at them and tell them off and then comfort them. You so know, how much of your parenting did you spend as a single mum? I would say really with my youngest for the first three years, I was mainly bringing her up on my own. And then I met my partner and then I was with him for 13 years. And then we split up in 2014. And so from 2014 to now, I've been really bringing them up on, the, on my own. And do you feel... That's, was he still supportive from the wings? And no, it was very toxic and was very kind of like it's been... He does now, but, I mean, I really... I have to admit that for many years I felt extremely embittered that I'd ended up as the full-time parent. I really struggled with it. Mm. I really kind of thought... Because I didn't even want to be a full-time parent. I had these children knowing that at that time my partner was much more of a house husband. He worked from home. He was quite happy in that role. Mm. I was able to be free to work and travel and do the things I wanted to do. But when we split up, I was in a position where I had no money. I was broke. I was in debt. I suddenly had three kids. He wasn't helpful because he was in his own distress but he was seriously not helpful for the first year at all so it was just overwhelming you know it was overwhelming especially at the same time as going through the menopause yeah and so I just think I spent so many years being embittered you know why do I have to do it all I've got to do all it's like having the whole weight on your shoulders yeah but really now I feel lucky that I had that time Really? So when you look back on it, you sort of have a Yeah, certain... I think COVID's really helped with that. Okay. I think really helped because for six months I haven't had to travel, I haven't had to go out to places, I haven't felt obligated to go to this private view because I should be seen. or You know, there's a lot of obligation, especially mm. when you're a creative and you don't know where your next job's coming from, so you spend a lot of time, like, thinking, I should do this, I should be seen here, I, you know. But for six months, that just disappeared half my workload disappeared you know I've had six months where I haven't traveled or gone anywhere yeah. and I think being in the family unit for that long with my kids mm -hmm. you'd have those touches of Christmas where it'd be like oh should we actually play a game together I mean it, <laughs> there weren't many opportunities there wasn't many times that actually happened but it did I think it was a healing experience mm. to be spend that amount of time together yeah. Without any of the distractions that are normally around. Well, I guess as well, your kids being that bit older as well is it's a different yeah. shape of things, isn't Definitely. it? Definitely. You know, when they're younger, it's just, it's so relentless. I so just find relentless. it so, like, relentless every day. There's so many people to think about and do. And, and, you know, I did, I struggled with motherhood, no doubt. So how did your work and your art fit in when the kids were little and you were on your own? How are you? I've got more water if you want. Oh, to, great. I've got you one as well, so... <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, when Poppy was young, I, I have to admit, I had a lot of help. I think one of the things is, is when I did my work was about activism and when it was about things, that draws a lot of people. And I had a very good support of kind of fellow mothers. Oh, that's nice. You know, so I think my kids have been brought up very communally. Yeah, that's a good way, isn't it? You know, there's... Um, there's pros to that and there's cons to that. You know, the negative is that everybody feeds their kids chicken nuggets and chips and pizza because it's the only combined meal that you can get all the kids to agree to. Yeah. So, you know, there's a chaotic side to that, you know, and it, and so we would farm our kids out a lot. They'd all stay. There'd all be endless pizzas and film nights. Mm. And, and, I, and I have a lot of really... I mean, amazing people that, like, my sister had my daughter so I could go to Romania to work in an orphanage and then I'd have friends come. And so they have had a very communal experience. And But 
now that's really paid is brilliant because now like when my son turned 18 he has these role models he has these people in his mm. life that have known him since he was a child and love him mm. you know and can come and I think that's really helpful yeah but you know with Poppy I worked a lot in her school I worked one day a week voluntarily at South filled school I kind of and I was doing community work and she would be brought we me and my friend Cameron would bring our three kids and they would traipse on a bus to Croydon with bags of tiles and we'd work with the community we kind of absorbed them into our work a lot yeah but with the other two it's slightly different my my partner was worked from home a great deal so he was really at home a lot and mm -hmm. I was literally in a studio mosaicing and is he an artist as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he does kind of commercial art, advertising and uh, co comic art. Okay. And so you're, and the fa Poppy's father, also an artist, is that? Yes. Okay. Yes, but now I'm staying well away from artists. I've learnt my lesson. It's the disaster for me. Okay, because um, we haven't yet talked about, so the last time I saw you was uh, actually at the end of July. Um, and then since from then to now... You've actually, because when I saw you in the end of July, you were a single woman, and yes. now you're an engaged woman. Yes, I know, that sounds ludicrous, given, <laughs> no, I like the, it. given, given the, the stories I've told, but yes, I I'm am I'm making now. no judgments here, Carrie. I no. think it's brilliant. I no, can see no, how happy I'm, you are. No, no, I mean, I've literally found my soulmate. I mean, I literally cried for the first couple of weeks because I just couldn't believe it. So how did you meet someone new? Oh, well, just through friends or no, no, dating apps? No, no, it gets or? worse than that. It's worse than that. <laughs> I actually met him on Hinge. Okay. It's quite funny because, you know, when I met you mm -hmm. and we were, we met, it, I was really quite happy. I'd literally got to a stage because of the corona. I think when we went into corona, I was panic-stricken. Mm. You know, beforehand, I'd pulled my kids out of school. I was buying up potato seeds. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. I was planning <laughs> on feeding my kids, with, you know, some potatoes. <laughs> And a de I bought a dehydrator to kind of prepare food. It's like... Really? Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> nuts, isn't it? You've got to incorporate that into I've got a jar right of now. strawberries that must have cost me about 150 quid because that's all I managed to dehydrate. It's like, this takes hours, man. <laughs> I'd have been so much better if I'd just bought You thought there was an apocalypse food. coming. Yeah, yeah, no, I was preparing. It was gone It had gone to, like, when the wind blows. Do you know what I mean? Hey, look, if you'd been right, I'd have been round there knocking it. Please yeah, can I have a potato no, I mean, seed. I literally, I kind of think I went into a really... <laughs> Chronic, I, I did. I mean, the last time I saw my, before the lockdown and I saw my um, therapist, I was all masked up with gloves crying. I didn't want to touch her. And I'm yeah. like, oh my God, the plague. I'm, you know, I kind of went into it like that. And I was watching all the fear porn, you know, death coming across from China to Italy to, you know, Iran. Yeah. And then after a few weeks, I just, I realised I couldn't function like that. And my therapist was really good in telling me to look at the opportunities that this time was presenting. And and so, but literally I turned off the telly. I limited my social media. I got into my work and I just buried myself into a different place. And and, con and one of the consequences of having more time is that I started walking to the park and taking my dog out. And I literally became quite happy. Mm. I think we discussed the fact that I'd been doing the silent disco in the park. Oh, and yeah. For an hour every night, I'd be listening to rock follies and musicals. And I felt very childlike because that's what I'd done when I was a child, dance in the rain, to singing mm. in the rain. And so I'd got to a quite a happy space. Mm -hmm. And um, about just before in August... My friend said, well, let's go down to Hastings. They've got these bands playing on a pier. 
And I was thinking, well, yeah, go anywhere for music right now. I just want to see something. And yeah. so we went to Hastings. I went with my friends who were an old couple. And I don't normally travel with couples. I usually have so many single friends and I travel work-wise, but I found myself in the back of a car with a couple who were very coupley. Mm. We went to Hastings and we sat on the pier and I was thinking, hmm, I'd quite like a boyfriend. I'd like to have someone to go in a car with. I'd like to go <laughs> somewhere. Having, having already kind of said to myself, I don't think I'll ever meet anyone. I don't think that's going to happen now. I'm too old. And really, do I want to? Because... It's destabilising for me and it, you know, probably better on my own because I can regulate myself better and all these things and convince mm. myself that that was the way it was going to be. I sat on this pier in Hastings and thought, you know what, I'd quite like a boyfriend and went on Hinge, which is a dating app. Yes, I've heard of Hinge. And I have spent periodically over the last six years going on Hinge or Too Many Fish or whatever it is, Tinder, you know, I'd looked at these spaces and mm. I'd been like, oh, it's just so depressing. <laughs> it's just, it, it is, it's I soul. Know, I know a lot of success it's soul. stories I know, I know, but I'd always find it remarkably soul-destroying. I'd never seen in six years anyone I even remarkably fancied. Nothing. Do you mm. know what I mean? I'd, I'd drink a bottle of Prosecco and after another half, I'd think, they live ten miles away. You know, they, you know, they've got nice eyebrows. I'd kind of find a reason <laughs> to like them and nothing. I'd only ever spoken to two people in six years, I'd spoke to two people. Mm. One turned out to be a barrister that when I locked him up, he was about to get... His landlord was taking him to court for spending all the rent on prostitutes and hookers. And I was like, oh, God, I had to delete yeah. my whole Tinder account. Was it swept left? Like, why, which well, way to get rid of them? I literally <laughs> deleted my... <laughs> delete, OK, fair enough, yes. <laughs> I deleted the whole... Fuck, sorry, I shouldn't swear. But I deleted, can the, swear whole, wants, okay. I deleted the whole account... And so I'd had another time where I nearly met a guy with a mobility shop who wanted me to go on a yacht. And I was like, oh, I don't want to get stuck on a yacht. I mean, it was just all fraught for me, I think, because it's hard to negotiate that thing. It's terrifying. So this is a very long story. but So I was sitting on um, the, the beach in Hastings and I thought, oh, go on Tinder, why not? You know, because these two are sitting there kissing and literally went on, <laughs> went on Hinge and just saw this face and just thought, wow... I could kiss him. I could kiss him. Wow. I could kiss him. You know, I just had this natural, this kind of thought, wow, I've never even seen, you know, because I didn't think you could really think that about photos. But I liked what he'd said. Yeah. I really loved what he said because he said, you're my kind of weird, um, if you like, left of centre art and music and films of passionate, compassionate, care about people and the world, but are a little bit daft. Oh, that sounds really good fun. What a good description as well. What a nice thing to write. Yeah, no, Those things are really like, hard to write, aren't they? Yeah, no, no, mine is pathetic. Mine were rubbish. And <laughs> so I kind of looked at this and thought, mm, that's kind of me. I was going to write, would you accept batshit crazy? <laughs> <laughs> but I just kind of went, like. And it's that thing where you like something and you throw it out and you think, well, they're not yeah. going to like me back anyway. And then literally within about a minute, I just got, yo, <laughs> this person just talking to me. Oh. And normally when people talk to you, you get into about three sentences and you think, well, where, what do I say next? But we just started talking. Yeah. And we just haven't stopped. I mean, we just talked for two days until we met each other and then we FaceTimed until we met the following weekend and we haven't stopped talking or laughing since. Aww. And I think there's such a recognition in both of us that... Yeah. This is what we always wanted and we found it and we're going to treasure this and we're going to, you know this is going to be forever 
And so, how the, do your kids feel about it all? Are they? They're. I think my oldest is rather. Uh, my oldest has been like an adult. So she's asking all the kind of well. She's just like, questions. well, you know, that's I'm happy for you, but I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm just going to see my 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 younger two are really accommodating of it. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're really kind of. They're fine about it. I think because they can see I'm so happy. Yeah. And okay, I have. I'm known for being impulsive, but in a way, the only thing I've done is got engaged, which is like for me is a just that thing that says, yeah, I'm committed. Yeah. I'm really committed to you and I'm prepared to tell the world. And so there's this, we've committed to each other. Yeah. We can't possibly get married because we're in COVID time. <laughs> and so that probably won't happen for a year. No, as you say, it's a commitment. It's and so commitment. I think I think they can see how happy I am. And so they're fine. Yeah. They're fine. I mean, my son said, I don't mind as long as you're happy, mum. That's the main thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's really... I mean, I feel like I'm waving a flag right now for the over 50s and for menopausal women because it's, you know, it's the opposite of what you're told. Yeah. It's the opposite that you're, you know, to find someone, and he's my toy boy. I mean, that's, everyone I know said, go younger, Carrie, go younger. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go out with anyone younger, but he's three days younger than me. <laughs> so it's really weird. We're so close in age. Yeah. We're three days apart who grew up liking the same things. So our point of reference is obscure punk bands like the All Opairs the same, yeah. or do you know what I mean we have that very similar sense of humour very we're very similar it's yeah. strange how similar we are we do make jokes about being with our strange twin uh-huh. <laughs> it does you know it's that stranger that feels familiar there is something that is undeniable yeah and I'm one of these people that if I feel something I'm going to feel it yeah yeah, well, no, I think I think there's some. I think that is flying a big flag, actually. And so, when you find yourself so sort of happy and with this real excitement about the future, how does it feel to look back on things like, you know, your home? How, did it take? I, I think I read it took ten years to do to cover your. Well, house. it's twenty years. Twenty years. Yeah, it's twenty years, and it's weird because my house has always been multi-occupied, even for the last. All the time I've lived there, I rented out the top of my house to my friend Tom, who's a musician. I have my assistant live there. I've had Airbnb. It's always been this house, but not really a home, mm-hmm. even though I say home is where the art is. But, you know, I finally have met someone who wants to move in and wants to create a home. Mm. I've, I've always wanted someone to, to be able to do that with. But yeah. really, I've always had to take that responsibility myself. I've not really found that person for all kinds of reasons. But yeah. it feels like, oh, my God, you know, I've now got a future. A kind of future that I always wanted, which was with someone, was to create something to to, to become, you know, to, to grow old with. And... Now I suddenly have that, mm. having literally got to the point where I'd accepted that wouldn't happen. Yeah. That's what's so magical about it. Because we've magical. both got to that point, I think, where we thought, you know, well, it's probably not going to happen. But it's, you know, I don't know how many friends you have of my age, but trust me, there isn't that many men of a, of my age that even want to go out with people of my age. Yeah. It's so I... refreshing to find someone that actually wants to find someone as a soulmate to find someone they connect with, wants to grow old disgracefully with, you yeah. know. It's so unusual to find someone that's emotionally... I mean, for me, I've tended to go out with people that are not very good emotionally expressive people because my father's so autistic and incapable of even empathy. 
And I think it's only because of all the years of therapy I've done that I've managed to be able to break out of that tendency of recreating our past to literally find someone that's very similar to me, that yeah. has all this love in their heart and been desperately wanted to show it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, it, it's, it is magical. And I think, I mean, you said about, you know, my friends your age, but I think, I think whenever you find yourself, particularly as a single parent, I think whenever you find yourself the other side of a relationship that you were hoping was going to be that future, I think you always feel initially like, well... I probably have to shut that bit of me down. And also, it's quite—it's it, it, what's really weird as well. If you think about it, I had all these these relationships with the two people I had kids with, but once you're postmenopausal, you know you're in a very different world. Mm. There's no fear of having children. That's not on the ever going to happen. It kind of freeing in a way. Mm. You can be a bit more selfish about what it is that just works for you now. Yeah, I think it, the relationship becomes centre stage. It's yeah. just us. We have children. We've experienced that. We love our children to bits, you know, but this is almost like this is our time. We can, you know, we can make plans that don't involve all that. Yeah. You know, this is someone who, the same as me, loves to travel, loves to go places, loves to do things. And so it's really kind of refreshing. It's really... It's weird because in some sense I feel more like a teenager than I've ever felt because yeah. you have that, you know, the racing heart, the kind of want to get home. It's like so all-absorbing. Yeah. But in another way, it comes from kind of an old age. You know, I've, I'm old enough and wise enough to, to be able to say, yes, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is fantastic. Yeah. And I, I think saw. one of the reasons why, one of the things I did when I in, first met... Um, Sean, my fiance, when I first met him is that I, and that's the first person I've ever met that I didn't know on a date ever. I've never met anyone in that way. But because I'd had these conversations where I felt so at ease yeah. and went to meet him, I was very careful to not drink. I was very careful that when we first met to, to, to be very present. Yeah. Because I know that my natural default position is to get nervous and to drink and then you can't really negotiate you can't really go back on your emotions and say well how did I really feel because I was drunk so I was very careful at the beginning of this to be able to see that it was for real yeah no that's well that, that actually takes a lot of courage as well because that's and it's the only time you can in my hide life. behind things when you're younger but this is the you? only time in my adult life that I've uh, got into a relationship sober yeah. And straight. And not now we kind of have a bottle of Prosecco and it's lovely, but all I'm saying is I was, it's the first time in my life that I was conscious and did that and did that after talking in therapy and understood these things, which has enabled me to have a totally different relationship to past ones. Yeah. It must be amazing, actually, because it sounds to me like everything has sort of happened at exactly the right time and you've you've been on such an extraordinary journey Firstly, with your relationship, when when you left school, what what uh, level was your art at then? Then did you study oh, no. art? Oh no, I left Chiswick School with O level maths and O level English, and O level art. Okay. And I went to Hounslow Borough College to do an extremely unique course called FIDAS, mm -hmm. that was running from probably from the seventies. FIDAS stands for Films, English, Drama, and Art Studies. So I left Chiswick where I was bored to death, and I went to you know and it went to Hounslow Borough College I don't know if you've seen it but they used to have the old I don't know if they're still there but the old Victorian gra uh, glass house it was all old okay. Victorian buildings oh, and really? I studied A-level English language and literature but I studied OA film studies A-level theatre design A-level theatre studies 
and music appreciation, which was sitting in that greenhouse with someone called Indio Kilburn who smoked a pipe and let us bring in records and we could appreciate them. <laughs> Sounds great. It was. It was real hippie bohemian <laughs> arts course. Yeah. Because I'd been obsessed with Alan Parker's fame, the mm. musical, before mm. the TV series and this was the closest I could find to a performance arts degree. And at yeah. the time there were 12 of us on the course. Wow. And, and so we did this amazing course. You know, I went from bored at Chiswick to suddenly be taken to see the Marcus de Sade presentation by Middlesex students and it was all like you know things that really were quite shocking at that time and introduced to the theatre of cruelty which is all like shocking the consciousness it was all like wow this is amazing mm. so I went there for two years and they do have a FIDAS reunion there's lots of famous actors and actresses yeah. and people that work there it's quite a unique little course yeah. I think it still runs but I wouldn't hold me to that so I went off and did all this drama and theatre and was like had my mind open to all of this and I, I actually left there to go to a degree in filmmaking at the Polytechnic of Central London got into a very exclusive filmmaking course but then discovered acid and dropped out after six months and literally became a tax collector Oh, okay. So I was a tax collector for a year and decided I hated it. I, I just did these awful jobs so I could travel around America, travel around India, travel around Nepal. Then came back and thought, I want to get back into art. So I went and did art foundation at Kingston Polytechnic. Mainly did sculpture, but I wanted to do filmmaking again. Mm. So I applied to do filmmaking at Sheffield, didn't get in. And they said to me, well, apply to Leeds, second choice. So I went to Leeds with a film and they said, we don't do film anymore it closed down two years ago and I was like mm, I'm not going to get in so I said do you know what what do you do and they said we do printing painting and sculpture I said well give me a hammer and give me a chisel and I'll do bloody sculpture then and the guy opposite me just accepted me because he thought I'd be like a thorn in the side of other people but yeah I literally got onto a degree in sculpture wow and then ended up doing sculpture for years so yeah I mean I just think my life has been all these happy little accidents yeah, yeah. where I've just followed this little path. Yeah, but it sounds like art's always been the thing you've gone back to because it sounds like you were still studying that while you had your young children and yeah. your relationships and stuff. So it's like the art's sort of like one pillar and then your kids are like another Yeah, and it pillar. took me years to really recognise how much my mental health was dependent on my creativity. Yes. I would say in the last few years it's it's become too much of a workaholic. I've, I've gone to that space. When I took out drugs and drinks and other things, I just, you know, I, I'm too happy to go into my workspace. And, and, and you know, I've realised a lot that it's much more about balance, mm. which is why it's great to suddenly be in a relationship where there's this amazing person that's that can help me do that. Yeah. Because I tend to just mass-produce work. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't need to work, I'll just produce the stuff. Because... Yeah. It, it kind of justifies all my vices. I can sit there, I can smoke, I can drink, I can watch Netflix, I can buy stuff, I can spend all day on eBay and just produce this work. But I've realised that that's not necessarily that healthy for me. It's much more healthy for me now to try and work normal hours and, and stop and stop at the weekends. And I think, like I said, going in COVID enabled me to have more of a space and see that that was even possible. Yeah, that's because interesting. It's like, it's like what you're part. saying about, you know, the whole premise of this is spinning plates. I think as a working single parent, that's, you get so used to juggling these, watching them break, one's smashing over there, trying to do this one, that you get locked into that. It's even hard to know how to get out of that. 
you know, and I got very much into that, right, I'm going to have to do all the cleaning, I'm going to have to do this, I hate cooking, I hate all this, I do this. Um, by eight o'clock in the evening, I'd go into my space, which is where I'd go to make things. And I'd go, and then I won't stop till three or four in the morning because the creative path is such that it might take you three hours to get to the point where you're happy with the flow of what you're doing. And so then I'd be permanently seat deprived because I have to get up the next day. But I think I did that so much that COVID came along and stopped that and enabled me to go, actually, I don't mind cooking when it's the only thing I have to do. Yeah. I, I quite like walking the dog when I've got the time to do it. It was like finding that time. And realising that all these things aren't that bad. It was the stress of money and it's the stress of time and it's the stress of juggling things. Well, there's a nice <laughs> metaphor there as well, of the spinning plates and then them smashing and then you, you literally pick up the plates and then mosaic them. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, somebody all recently... Someone recently accused me of, what was it, writing on plates and spoiling them. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I think it's... a. I really like that metaphor because I do think that as a, a working mother you are spinning those plates emotionally as well as physically you know trying to you know do the job the best you can or if you're a creative person to create your best work you know you yeah. have that passion and yet somewhere else there's this child that needs all this other child or there's these constant demands made on your time yes and and I used to work in my studio and felt so guilty about working in my studio long hours when I became single parent that I started working from home but that becomes a nightmare mm. because they don't seem to recognize that your office is your office it's yeah like it's 24 7 it's the same when the schools phone me up in the middle of the day and I'm like I'm up a 22 meter scaffolding and doing public art I don't care if my son's late <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah you know there's no especially it's like I was thinking well phone their fathers why are you yeah. phoning me all the time why me you know, there's this expectation that you're always going to be available for your kids. You know, they constantly knock on the doors. Mm. And so it's very hard to have a work divide if you're working from home. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, def, I always agreed with that, but this year's really been this sort of cartoon <laughs> exaggeration of that. Um, I, I wanted just to talk briefly about your T-shirt as well because your top says unfit mother. Oh, yes, unfit mother. <laughs> it also says bring back pubes I spotted that as well. That's a good yes. badge. <laughs> <laughs> um, the unfit mother thing is something I've seen you write on other things before. What's the sort of significance <sighs> of it? I mean... Well, there's always a story behind everything, but at the time that I was splitting up with the father of my two youngest kids, we were in a lot of, like... You know, it was toxic and it wasn't a very pleasant split up. But, but there was a time where I was financially and emotionally and physically bringing up the kids. And he wasn't. And, and But he sent me an email where he said, how would you feel if I made a piece of art and called it the unfit mother? And I was thinking, you just, you don't get to do that. You don't get to call me. You can't, how can I be anything other than an unfit mother when I'm trying so hard to do all these things? You can't, you know. And so I was so angry about that. Mm. That I thought, you know what, I'll take it, I'll, I'll, I'll use that, I'm going to use that. And so I got my friend, uh, Laurie, Laurie Bell, a.k.a. Lady Muck, to make me a patch, because she often makes patches in, in embroidery, and she made me Unfit Mother, and I wore it on a hat, and we did it at the Art Car Boot Fair. Yeah. And it became her best-selling patch, <laughs> because there was a recognition in people that they liked it, because yeah. they saw, you know, that, you know, they feel it. There really is, with a lot of women, feel that kind of tone, that kind of you're unfit, which which is something that's projected onto women that would never be projected onto men. 
you know, it just isn't in the same cultural way, in the way that we view things. And so after that, I just really, you know, I started making a whole series of art and I'd call all of it Unfit Mother. And so now I've even got T-shirts that you yeah, can get. Yeah, I'd like Art a T-shirt. Boot Fair. I'll have to get one of those. Yes, yes. They're going <laughs> on Sunday to the Art Car Boot Fair. But um, yeah, so I kind of, in a way, I just was so annoyed about him being able to say that to me from a position of where you're not even dealing with the kids, that, yeah, I kind of took it on as my kind of alter ego. Well, I'm glad, because that would make me angry too, and I think, yeah, make it, owning it like that is actually really cool, but also highlights the fact that, I mean, from where I'm standing, anyone... Whenever people say to me, oh, I don't know how you do it with your kids, I'm always like, let me get them all to adulthood, and then you can give me a high five. And now you're, you're basically pretty much, pretty much there with yours. And I think what you've also done and listening to you talk, and I'm going to let you go now because I feel like I've been really, really nosy, but there's, I'm sort of realising, and I don't want... This isn't me being overly twee. It's like a genuine feeling I have. If I can create kids that are capable of loving and being loved, I actually think that's a massive deal. And listening to you and all the things you've been through and, you know, obviously your very challenging relationship with your dad, um, how you've been made to feel about yourself... The fact that you're now in a place where, you know, you went to meet this new partner and you went there sober and you've gone there just as you and wanted real clarity. You've you've basically got the, what I think is the definition of a successful life to be at the point where you can say to someone, I love you and I, I, I can allow you to properly love me because the relationships you described before don't sound like they were maybe as... As, as as loving in that proper no, they weren't it wasn't it wasn't because ba- there was you're absolutely right because the point is is that I think we both realised that I love him as he is and he loves me I've never felt so loved in the way of, of truly who I am mm. and, and when he met my my oldest dearest friend Susan the one thing she said is the thing that makes me the most happy is you're the most yourself with him ah yeah you know and I am I, I know that I know that he adores me and I adore him and so that's, you know, that's not something I'd ever thought was possible because I've spent my whole life feeling really unlovable, so unlovable that I used to smash my own head up, you know, so unlovable to such an extreme point. And it took me so many years to unravel that and it mm. took me five years of therapy and nine months in AA and all kinds of things and a, and a pandemic to kind of come out the other side and go, do you know what, I quite like myself, I've done all right. So it was literally at that point where I managed to meet that person, which is, you know, it's great because everyone loves a happy ever after, don't they? They do, and it is a happy ending. So thank you, and I'm really happy for you. I can't Uh, wait to see what what art will come out of it, but it sounds like you're going to have lots of adventures. Oh, well, thank you for letting me talk to you. It's been great. Oh, it's been brilliant. Really brilliant. Thank you, Carrie. Oh, what do you think of that? See, I told you it was fascinating. How amazing all that death row stuff. I mean, that, oh, just... Sometimes you have a conversation with someone and you end up telling loads of people about it, and that is one of those. I was like, oh, my goodness, you have to hear about this story of Carrie who lives near me and became pen pals with someone on death row for five years and then, yeah, making the death mask and all of that. Extraordinary. But actually, you know, out of that... That thing that Carrie said about finding a cause greater than your yourself and your own as a way to help your mental health, that really stayed with me as well. Um, I think that is actually a really important thing. And actually, I know, I've seen it close hand with people I care about who've gone through difficult times and then they've put their energy into 
helping someone else or getting involved with something locally and it sort of turns around the emphasis of stuff for them and really helps so that really stayed with me too and yeah what a woman I love it I just it really is such a privilege to be able to record these interviews and to have these chats with people and then to share them with you so thank you so much for giving me this forum um and what else can I tell you about this week uh my house has been turned into well my kitchen actually I've never ever decorated in my kitchen before in my life and it looks like a flipping very low budget Christmas themed TV show I don't know if you'd remember there used to be this program on telly called Get Stuffed where all these students would do cooking and it was very messy and it was on at like two in the morning it looks like that it looks like students have made a Christmas program and they've just stuck up any cheap old tat they found in a skip. In fact, I was walking around with one of my beautiful little Christmas trees. Um, I was doing a... (laughs) This is a weird one. Richard and I were doing a DJ gig this week for a Christmas party. They wanted it done live, even though obviously everybody watching it was virtual. So we brought to the location where we were having being filmed to have it sort of beamed people. We brought along a few props, including a Christmas tree, and someone saw me with it and said, where did you steal that from? And actually, a lot of my stuff does look like I've sort of stolen it out of yeah some bin next to a shop where they have bad taste in fact that brings me on to what kit said about it when he saw the playroom and i said what do you think of all the decorations and he said it looks like you're doing a tutorial on how to do christmas decorations but the person doing the tutorial doesn't know how to do it i think that sums up pretty well thank you kit uh anywho next week is the last podcast of the series we have reached that point another 10 done which means next week is number 20 and next week is oh some gorgeous gorgeous girls called the nervo sisters it's the first one and the only one i've done where it's been two other people but it's interviewing chatting to identical twin sisters mim and Liv nervo who are massive djs but i've also um both become mums to little girls within a few months of each other but there's quite a lot of heartbreak in there too and uh yeah I'll probably have to do some sort of um warning before that one really because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in that chat uh it goes quite deep and uh it's quite emotional uh yes but don't worry the happy ending is they have their gorgeous girls and they are lovely women Mim and Liv Uh, Just like Carrie had her happy ending with Finding Romance. And on that note, I'm going to leave you until next week. And um, yeah, hope you're feeling all right. Sending some festive cheer and lots of love from my house to yours. See you soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.